Welcome to another episode from Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to the podcast. If you're returning, welcome back. Tales has been heard in over 850 cities in 49 countries around the globe. What I understand is that most listeners are streaming the podcast while they're in their cars. So I was driving in Mount Pleasant the other day, and for those listeners not familiar with Charleston, it's just another one of those crazy growth communities affected by, by COVID, I guess, and affected by what's now called the big move from workers and early retirees that were just ready for a lifestyle change. So it's getting crazy here. If you're listening and not living here now, I'd advise looking elsewhere. I mean, it's just a horrible place to live. I'll give you some examples. All right, number one, it doesn't get cold enough for long enough. Number two, The people are just too friendly and too hospitable and only want to look for reasons to enjoy life. Number three, the food wars are unforgiving. Every year, 10% of the underperforming restaurants and bars get replaced by these innovative and educated chefs and mixologists. Who wants that? Number four, if you're a single guy, you'll hate it. Several colleges that breed intelligent women that dress to the nines. And if you're gender agnostic, there are just too many educated people that are dressed to the nines. Number five, the beaches are just too long and don't ever close. And if you hate dogs, the beaches allow canines unleashed in the morning that just chase balls and body surf. Number six, the golf courses are not pricey enough to demonstrate how good they are. Number seven, too many people own boats. And number eight, not enough people that have migrated from New York or Ohio. So as I was starting to say, I'm driving in Mount Pleasant the other day while enduring the painstaking 75 degree sunshine with my car windows open, stopped at a light, and I heard a familiar voice with a familiar piano riff. This guy who pulls up to me right next to me with his windows open is listening to one of my episodes, and I am fucking bewildered. What are the odds? 0.0000, and maybe there's a one after that. Just one more reason to keep on doing these. This week, I'll talk about Kyle Morris Rowe and his band of Cincy Satisfiers that return to Charleston to conquer the female co-eds and take on another shot at golf. Also, when bad isn't good enough. The First Amendment to the Rules of Business Golf. But first, a segment I call What Annoys Me This Week. In Plymouth, Mass., 
Athena and Eric Tenzar won a $4.9 million lawsuit against Indian Pond Golf Country Club because of excessive golf balls in their yard. Say what? You heard me right. A couple that bought a house that was adjacent to a fairway on a golf course sued the golf course because too many golf balls were entering their property and they won. What do people who buy houses on golf courses expect? Most homeowners that homeowners that buy or build a house near a tee box or on the other side of a pond with a view of the green usually do so to avoid golf ball barrages. I don't know how many houses I've looked at over my life as an adult where I wanted to live on a golf course and didn't think through, okay, who is likely to hit this house? You know, is it 200 yards down the fairway? Am I right next to the TRX? You kind of game it and you look at the house. And if you're a golfer, you think through what are all the scenarios where my house can get pummeled or am I pretty much out of harm's way, right? So if you choose to buy a house anywhere between the tee box and the green, because either there were no other homes available in the neighborhood or you didn't or couldn't afford the premiums for the so-called more-in-demand lots, you have to anticipate that some unwanted visitors, including golf balls and pissed-off golfers, are going to enter your lot. The fact that they missed the fairway and hit their precious Pro V1s in your yard, you know, you have to believe that you know they're not going to come in happy and most likely they're going to come in looking for their golf ball. Years ago, when I lived in San Clemente, California, I played this Muni there weekly, the San Clemente Municipal Golf Course. It was inexpensive, I was relearning the sport, and it was five minutes from my house. And it had some awesome ocean vistas. Now, for you golf snobs, that was my disclaimer for playing a Muni. Sometime during my 12 years there, a couple buys a house across the street from the 12th fairway. The 12th hole was a par 5, 495 yards, with a road that stretched all the way down the right side of the fairway, separating the golf course from some ocean vista holes. They were referred to as Blue Water Vista Homes. That was a term for not close enough to the beach to see the whitewater breaks on the shore, but high enough above sea level to see the ocean at a distance. So these were all Blue Water Vista Homes. And they must have been 15 to 20 homes across the street lining the fairway. And for those of you who play golf, you know that righties or golfers that play right-handed are arguably 90 to 95% of all golfers. And how do I know that? When I researched it, I asked how many golfers are right-handed, and I got several different numbers. But for most of it, you're looking at only 5 to 7% are lefty, so the majority of golfers play righty. And for most golfers, particularly beginning golfers, they slice the ball. They fade the ball. The difference between a slice and a fade is a fade, you could pretty much hit your next shot. A slice is probably out of bounds or someplace where you can't hit the next shot. So there are going to be people that when they're playing this hole, 
are going to slice their ball. They're going to hit it to the right. And some are going to hit it out of bounds. And some of those balls are going to go across the street into some of the yards of those 15 to 20 homes. Some of the 15 to 20 homes saw a golf ball every once in a while. There were at least three of the homes that were in what we called Slicer's Alley, 175 to 250 yards from the tee boxes on the right-hand side. Now, some of those homes put up these mesh shields to prevent window damage. So one time during this 12-year period that I'm there, this one couple buys one of the three Slicer's Alley homes and within six months sues the municipality and asks them to reverse the order of the 11th and the 12th holes so that the fairway bordering the road across from these homes would be free from righty slicers and, you know, free from poorly hit shots. And everybody thought they were crazy, including the judge who threw the case out of court. The lawyers for the Muni's defense was that the golf course had been there for over 50 years and homeowners that bought across the street from the 12th ferry knew the risks of golf balls coming across there and had the right to install this decorative mesh to catch errant shots. So when I hear about this lawsuit, I'm fascinated. How could a family who buys a home on a golf course sue and win? And win $4.9 million. So before I started doing the research about this, I had this germ of an idea in my head that, you know, this, you know, my rant was going to be about selfish homeowners that want the world around them to bend and shape their policies to suit them. But the more I read about the case, the more I realized the family did the right thing. When they bought the house, they thought they bought a golf course view property, but what they really bought was a golf course in play property on the 15th hole. The house was located at the apex of the dog leg. Most golfers that wanted to improve their score on the hole aim their shots over the corner of the dog leg to land their tee shots closer to the green so that they'd have a more accurate approach at, right? Who doesn't want to cut a dog leg. It's always risk and reward, right? Number one, it looks cool to launch your ball over trees and find it in the middle of a hidden dog leg. I mean, that's pretty cool. Number two, you have a better chance of scoring lower on that hole and possibly winning a golf bet by getting it closer to the green after your tee shot. This hole was designed as a risk and reward hole. What's the risk for the golfer? Well, you think possibly hit a tree or go out of bounds. What's the reward? Glory, baby. Win the hole. And then retell the story at the bar at the 19th hole until your buddies just walk out of the place. Now, here's the kicker. Over the course of one year, the 10 scars collected upwards of 700 golf balls, many of which hit and damaged their house. And when it hit, it sounded like mortar fire hitting the house. They had broken windows they had to fix. And their two girls were instructed to wear bicycle helmets anytime they went to play in the backyard. Now, the Tenskers requested the country club to reset the tee boxes so that their property was less in play. The country club refused. 
just like San Clemente Municipal refused. But here's the thing. The Tensker's attorneys were able to prove that their home, due to a course design flaw, was in play. What annoys me here is, to, is really twofold. Number one, golf course architecture. How do you build a golf course with a dog leg and have a property right there on the dog leg where you expect really good players to go up and over your house to land on the fairway? I mean, they have a residential property in the go zone. That's a slot that allows good golfers to take the risk of out of bounds or the glory of landing it in the vicinity of the green. That's the go zone. And most go zones are over woods, ponds, or bunkers. This one was over a residential property. And maybe when they built the course, that land where the property was wasn't designated to build a home. And then maybe a crafty and greedy builder found a way around all the building restrictions and built a home there. Now, I made that shit up, but it's possible, right? All you have to do is watch the series Ozark on Netflix to see how characters figure ways to manipulate the system to believe my premise was possible. So it's possible that that's happened. I don't know that that's the truth. What annoys me even more is the unwillingness of the golf club to alter the tee box until they lost the case. Now, they had to move the tee box anyway and then be on the hook for millions of dollars for emotional distress and to fix home repairs. And worse, now there's a legal precedent in golf for all homeowners living on golf courses and are tired of dealing with asshole golfers and stray golf balls. The challenges of golf sometimes brings out the best of us, and in this situation, it was definitely the worst of us. The boys from Cincinnati are back in town. So last year, I featured a group of guys from Cincinnati that came to the first tee chugging beers. And it wasn't just chugging beers from a can. It was from a device they called the Chug Buddy. It was a bong-like device that connected a can of beer through a tube to enhance the shotgun pressure. And by the way, uh, Chug Buddies are 30 bucks on Amazon if any of you degenerates were interested. Anyway, Kyle Morrisrow, Chris Kiley, and Kevin Curley and a handful more of the Cincy Sandburners returned to the scene of the crime this year, this time without the Chug Buddy. I mean, how can that be? Sacre bleu! Last year, they were celebrating a divorce. Now, that is a novel concept, right? If that becomes a thing, most golf courses can start planning for a 50% increase in weekend tee time demand, particularly down here in the low country. This year, the three Ks... Like, if Chris was spelled with a K, they'd all be the three Ks. I just think it that sounds cooler as the three Ks. And Chris, you ought to change your name to start with a K. So anyway, the three Ks from Cincy came up to the first tee box with the same level of enthusiasm as they did the year before. I mean, what is in the water in Cincy? Could it be Bengal fever? I mean, the Bengals were positioned to go into overtime during last year's Super Bowl until... Cooper Cup showed why he was voted MVP. 
It could be the ribs at the Montgomery Inn. That's where I learned how to cook ribs. It could be the chili and spaghetti at Skyline or the animatronic shopping experience at Jungle Gyms. Or maybe people from Ohio are just fun and that's why we get so many Buckeye transplants. Either way, this town is not safe when the three K's and their minstrel hits King Street. Fathers, hide your daughters. Golf courses, load up on the Bev carts. And Ohio Buckeye fans, in the South here in the Low Country, there are only two sanctioned NCAA football teams. It's Clemson and USC. You're welcome, low country. Next subject. When bad just isn't good enough. Sometimes you can win with your B or even your C game. It all depends on how badly the other guys play. I've shot as much as 10 strokes above my handicap and won some coin that day, usually because you or your partner scored well enough on one or more holes than your adversaries. It's called Ham and Egan. Last week was not that day. Now, I'm going to take a page out of the Tin Man's playbook and state up front that if Fred Couples and Andre Agassi had a baby... Its back problems would be laughable compared to mine. That's all I'm going to say about my physical conditions last Thursday. Other than that, I don't recommend treating a bad back with Flexerol the evening before you have a 7 a.m. tea time. Come on, stop whining. It was one of those rounds where you just start off sending a strong message to your competitors during the first three or four holes, and then it was like somebody killed the messenger. Some days it's hard to find the magic. Other days you find it and you quickly lose it. This was a day where the magic was happening in the other carts. Billy the Kid and I took on guns and a new character I'll call Jimmy Z. I've seen Jimmy Z play in the senior group, but never had an opportunity to tee it up with him. Guns, who's somewhere in the vicinity of a six handicap, always brings his A or B plus game. So I knew that Billy and I were in for a fight. After four holes, it looks like we're going to run away with it. Early, until Jimmy Z starts to hit these 270-yard bombs that never go higher than six feet tall. As an example, if I were standing over 200 yards away from the tee box in the middle of the fairway, his tee shot would have grazed my head every time. I've never seen anything like it, nor had he. I mean, Jimmy Z's been playing for at least 50 years. You'd think he'd seen just about everything by now. We get to the ninth tee box, and we're down a few points, and Billy the Kid calls the press. He calls it before I could weigh in, but he knows me. I usually, if he's going to call the press, I'm going to go with him. So 
we proceeded to witness Guns and Z par and birdie the hole. Meanwhile, I'm still in la-la land because of the flexorol. With three doubles, three pars, and a bogey, I keep us close enough to be tied on the back. Now, Billy the Kid grabs me at the 17th hole and says, Hey, listen to this. We just won this hole. We're tied going into 18. We've lost the front. We've lost the press. It looks like we're going to lose the overall, but what we could do is press. So now I have the long walk of Shane from from the 17th green over two bridges to the 18th tee box. He's given me time to think about it. And quite frankly, other than parring 17, I had not been playing well on the back. As a matter of fact, I was playing worse on the back than I was on the front. And that's not saying anything. It was horrible. And I knew it was horrible. And it was just one of those things where I tried to wish the ball in the hole. I tried to do everything possible, but my brain and my hands had two different strategies. So as we get to 18, I'm about to tell Billy, hey, listen, let's just take our medicine. We're down three bets. Let's try and tie the hole. We'll lose 15 bucks. That's just the way it is today. And before I say it, Billy's like, well, we in front of everybody, well, we have one more press. And Jimmy Z just turns around and goes, well, you know what that did on the ninth hole, don't you? And that's all. There's something inside of me clicks. Like I've got, I've got this rational thinking. I know I'm not playing my best and I, I'm not sure I have a birdie in me for this hole, but Jimmy had to say that. And I just turned to him and said, okay, game on presses on. And it's almost like I talked about in the last episode, how you have two golfers in your head. All of a sudden I become tin cup. So now it's our turn to hit because we won the last hole. And Billy, the kid, looks at me and goes, you're up. And now I'm doing all kind of this karate kid zen shit. Um, I didn't do that whole the dragon move or the butterfly, whatever the hell you call that. But I am doing my meditative breathing. I am visualizing. I am doing everything that I know how to do to try and manipulate this ball from where I'm standing over the marsh, on the green, into the hole. I take my club back, I hit the ball. It does not go where I want it to go. As a matter of fact, it's starting to veer off to the right, and I'm just like, get over the marsh, get over the marsh, get over the marsh. I'm not saying it, I'm thinking it. And the ball goes over the marsh, hits kind of the front of the green, and shoots off to the right. This is like an elevated green, and so when you miss the green, you're going to be below the green, below the hole. The other three guys hit, they're all on the green. Guns is like three feet from the cup. I really thought it was a hole in one in the air. So now I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, you cannot lose the press. I mean, you got all your hubris up and your backbone got stiff and you're like, let's go, let's do this. And I am the farthest from the cup. So I learned from a caddy when I played the ocean course down in Kiowa, that when you get to these domed greens, particularly when the grass is not thick and you've got some dirt that you always use your putter, or if it's really tight grass, always use your putter. And so I get up there, I pull my putter out. Some people call it the Texas wedge when you're not on the green. 
And I hit the ball up onto the green and now it's starting to go downhill towards the hole. And Billy, the kid's like, go, go. He's like yelling. I think my ball's getting scared. It's slowing down. And now I'm like four feet from the hole. The next two guys go and hit. Billy hits, Z hits, and now it's up to Gunner. If Gunner makes this putt, they win the back, they win the overall, they win the, the, the first press, and now they're winning the second press. Five bets, 25 bucks. And so he now goes to hit his putt, and for some reason, his ball's going right at the hole. It's three feet away, and it must have hit something on the green. Veered a little bit to the left and hit the side of the cup and stayed left from the cup. Didn't go in. All four of us were amazed. Well, we thought it was in. So now it's up to me. I've got a four foot putt. Now I've just got to tie the press and just be down three bets and that's it. And this time I don't do any Zen shit. I don't do any visualization. I walk up to the hole. I look at it. I pull my putter back, bam, in the hole. So the moral of this story is sometimes bad just isn't good enough. So now I go up to Guns and I'm going to pay him. Each one of us pay one of the other competitors. So I am, I take out my $15 and then I scrunch up my dollar bills like Bill Murray did in Stripes. Guns, I don't, if he'd never seen Stripes, he might have seen it as a sign of disrespect for U.S. currency or for our match. If he saw Stripes, he'd be laughing his ass off. I'm not sure which it was, but he smiled, we shook hands, and the match was over. Sometimes bad is just not good enough. Another Bag Boy Billy story. episodes back I told a story about a guy I had met and played with who I named Bag Boy Billy who encountered Dwayne Johnson formerly known as The Rock when he worked for Delta Airlines in their baggage claim I guess a premier service and he had this friendly albeit very tense interaction with him just because of one of his employees so Billy sees me sitting at the first tee this past Saturday and wanted to share another story, which when I heard had me falling out of the cart laughing. A few days ago, Billy was driving with his son in the car, listening to another episode of Tales. Hey, maybe that was the guy I pulled up to. So I thought that was very nice of him to tell me that. Now, in this story, he's telling me his son is in the back seat and must have dropped something on the floor and he couldn't get it. And I guess he was pissed and he exclaimed something like, God damn it. Now, Billy and his family, who are from a God-fearing church-going congregation, thought that this would be a great teaching moment for his son. So Billy started with his son and he said, hey, it's not right to take the Lord's name in vain. Okay, that was lesson one. Lesson two, you're a smart kid with a good vocabulary. Now, if I was speaking to my son at that age, I would have said something like, you know, you have a vast underused lexicon (laughs) just to fuck with him. But, you know, we were sarcastic in our family in somewhat of a sadistic nature. 
And number three, at times you might choose to use a curse word for effect. Now, the two of them started going back and forth and arguing. You know, it's a classic father-son argument. You know, it's like the voices get louder. Each one is trying to make a point. And so when they can't use rational thinking, the, the volume goes up. You figure whoever yells the loudest wins. So they're going back and forth as to a debate on what is appropriate to curse. When is it appropriate? What words do you use? And when is it better to use your vocabulary to make a point without offending anybody? So the conversation goes on for several minutes. It's getting louder. It's getting heated until they just stop for a second. And when they stop, they're listening to my podcast and they hear a part where I guess I just wanted to illustrate my utter amazement or total failure in something, misfortune, impasse, or inefficacy. How's that for vocabulary? But what I said was, motherfucker. At this point, Billy and his son's conversation came to a halt, and his son just looks at him and said, hey, Dad, isn't that your friend? And Billy just said, why, yes, it is. And son, that's how you use a curse word to illustrate and underscore your point. And at that point, the two of them just started cracking up and, hey, point made. Whoever thought that Tales from the First Tee would be used for a parent-child teachable moment? You know, maybe I ought to just start writing children's books next. Hickory Dickory Duck. I think you know where that's going. This is officially the First Amendment to Rich's Rules of Business Golf. Ain't it sad to be sober? So this is another story where I'm sitting at the first tee. And one of my ardent and impassioned listeners comes up and says to me, Hey, Rich, I love the episode about how not to fuck up business golf and get fired because this guy had an experience with his boss where they both got drunk and played. The episode he's referring to was one where I covered some experiences I had in business golf, some that went really well and some terribly bad. Now, the terribly bad story was obviously about another guy, but it could have been me. The fundamental lessons learned were that business and customer golf is far different than any other type of golf, particularly buddy golf, where cheating and drinking and mischief was acceptable, if not even expected. In customer and business golf, there's a pecking order There's the boss, the head cheese, the chief of the tribe, or the individual that holds your business balls in their hands. Whatever happens on the golf course, you want that person to feel grateful for the experience and happy about themselves. We always made sure that our customers exited from the golf course through the pro shop with a token of our appreciation. They might not have played their best, but they 
they could have left with a monocured shirt and a hat that said something like Pebble Beach or whatever special course we took them to. I would have said the master's logo, but if you've ever listened to my podcast, you'd know that's just not a place I've been yet. But next year is the year come hell or high water. Business golf, when you're playing with a boss or a head cheese, a little different than customer golf. It takes on a different tone. If you're playing with the boss against others, you'd better bring your A game and make certain that your boss, he or she, posts their lowest score that any amenable rule will allow. Example, taking a mulligan. Like like they hit a bad shot and you're like, I'm sorry, I was talking in your backswing, which caused you to yank it out of bounds. Please take another one. Or you could move it out of the bunker if there's any standing water or if there's any water even near to it. You know, that next 10-foot putt, that's good. We know you could make it. You've made it before. Often, but not always, when you play with an ego-driven sociopath, also known as a CEO, they're likely to accept any charity when it comes to scoring help. When you play with the rulesy boss, make sure you don't bend the rules or he or she will think that you do the same thing in business. So here's amendment number one to business and customer golf. If the boss or customer wants to party until it's 1999, make sure their cup is always filled and it's okay to party with them if you can still remember that it's still business. It's business golf. These are not your buddies. This is your boss. This is not the time to win the chug buddy competition. This is not the time to take more bong hits or gummies than the rest of the foursome. Save that for buddy golf. This is the time to be the Sherpa and lead them to their peak, not yours. So this listener is telling me that he got smashed with his boss while they were playing golf and he was thinking about the episode. The fact that the boss didn't fire his ass tells me that he kept his shit together just long enough to pour his boss into an Uber. You want to live to play another day, which might be an obscure but yet cogent point passed down by Sun Tzu in his book, The Art of War. And remember, whatever happens on the golf course stays on the golf course. You don't want to be the guy who starts telling stories at a school about what your boss did. You never want to do that because you are probably doing it too. For all of you that stayed to the end, thanks. And for you, I have a special treat. This episode was in the can. That's Hollywood talk for done, finito, ready to hit the airwaves. And then last night, I went to this newly renovated music farm to see this group, Lawrence. 
Now, I'd never heard of him before. So Tracy had told me, hey, I got tickets for this group. I think you want to listen to them. Their album is called Hotel TV. Here with the song Don't Lose Sight, Lawrence. and most millennials who've never heard of them, moi included, they're eight musicians that met in New York City and Brown University and decided to take their act on the road, some of whom dropped out of college to pursue the dream of live stage music. The Lawrences, Gracie and Clyde, are New York City bred and trained and are a brother-sister act that rivals any that have gone before them. I'm a piano and keyboard enthusiast who listened to Billy Joel, Elton John, Bruce Hornsby, Dr. John, and Chris Martin. Just to hear what great keyboards sound like and great voices. This young 24-year-old Clyde Lawrence is all of that, and his sister Gracie leaves it all on the stage. Some artists, when performing on stage, dream that when they start waving their hands in the air or start clapping to get the crowd and the audience involved, they follow and they start doing the wave and they start clapping, right? But just because a musician does it doesn't always translate to an entire crowd doing the same thing. Freddie Mercury earned it, and when he and Queen included the crowd in their songs, thousands of concertgoers willingly joined in. It was part of the experience that brought them to see Queen in the first place. I've been to so many live shows where the lead singer tries to get the crowd moving with only moderate success. It's like a game of Simon Says, but the former performer never earned the role of Simon. They just said, do this, do that. And the same people that probably got knocked out of Simon Says in the first round were likely to be the people that are following them, clapping or waving their hands. But that being said, Lawrence earned every clap, arm sway, and dance because they put on a show at the music farm that towered above any act I've seen for decades. Their high energy with powerful vocals, keyboards, guitars, horns, and drums. Most of the crowd actually knew the words to their songs, and they were singing along on every song. Shit, there was a segment where Clyde just stopped the music and said, 
Let's Get Funky. And he starts playing this funky music, which led into the electric slide. And trust me when I say this. Everyone in the music farm, including the bartenders and security, broke into the slide. What kind of performers in their 20s can command the stage and the crowd like that? I'll tell you who. Lawrence. If you like live music and want a shot at hopeful adrenaline, go take your friends, lovers, family, partners, or go solo. You won't regret the experience. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.